Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 24 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. My name is Luke. I'm one of your hosts. I am an assistant professor of dermatology at the University of Utah, and joining me on the line is... This is Michelle Tarbox. I am an assistant dean of medical student affairs and an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. It's the beginning of April 2020 when we're recording this, which means the coronavirus pandemic is in full swing. And we were just discussing about the ways in which we're dealing with it. A lot of our, a lot of our visits have moved to teledermatology where I am but you can't do telemos and you can't do teleskin checks very well. Though I'm a pediatric dermatologist, so a lot of my patients are pretty well placed for it, I think. Yeah, we've been doing a lot of telemedicine as well, and I 100% agree with you. The pediatric visits for like acne or eczema really work pretty well with telemedicine. Um, skin checks are, of course, limited. I think the most interesting thing I've gotten to diagnose over telemedicine so far has actually been a mastocytoma. It was quite lovely. Mm. Yeah. Um, and we are still doing surgery only for like life-threatening stuff, so invasive melanomas and bad squamous cell carcinomas. Um, definitely learning about how to take care of people remotely. And some of our patients have actually expressed that they would like to continue their follow-ups this way if possible for things that are amenable to that, like type certain types of psoriasis, acne, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think it's especially nice for the Accutane follow-up patients. And another thing that's nice about the pediatric patients is that their parents are more likely to be young and relatively technologically savvy than some other dermatology patients, I can imagine. <laughs> I have spent more time than I would like to admit staring at the ceiling while patients tried to figure out how their cameras worked. So, And speaking of coronavirus, we're also all wearing masks in clinic, um, even just around our fellow co-workers. And sometimes those masks get awfully uncomfortable. Yes. But there's a small nugget that might help ourselves make them more comfortable. Absolutely. So we have an article here out of the March JAD, and the authors are Yanju Yu and Zhang Chen, and you may have guessed from their names that they are out of Hunan, China, and also out of Hunan Province, China, and um, there are multiple different departments, predominantly dermatology, and human engineering research. And the title of this article is One More Paper Towel, Longer Protection. And so they basically begin this short communication saying that there is a shortage of surgical masks and that the saving and reuse of surgical masks has become a prominent topic in the public discourse. The typical life cycle of a surgical mask is about four hours. And one of the greatest limiting factors is the high humidity of the wearer's expired air and they, what they call splutter, which I thought was a lovely word, um, leading to trapping, trapping of moisture into the masks. And that trapping of moisture can lead to the growth of bacteria and can also irritate the skin. So what they propose is that paper towels, which are highly absorbent and inexpensive, can be folded to a small size and used to reduce the amount of water vapor and what they call the splutter exhaled from the mouth. And they feel that you can take a paper towel and fold it in half a couple of times to form a rectangle and then actually put that in between your mouth and the front of the surgical mask. And then they have a very nice uh, kind of figure to demonstrate how that could be used. And they feel that that will help to absorb some of the moisture, keep your mask more moisture resistant and less irritating to your skin. They are recommending kind of changing the paper towel as it becomes too humid or too moist or too soiled. Um, one thing you would want to emphasize, though, is that anytime you're changing or replacing your PPE, you have to use very careful technique to not contaminate your face or the inside of the mask. So, of course, you'd want to wash your hands very carefully and make sure that you are doing these changes of the inside of the mask lining in a clean environment. So you wouldn't want to be doing that anywhere where there might be a higher percentage of viral particles in the air. Like you would not do that inside of a like ICU that's actively treating COVID patients. So fold up a paper towel and put it in your surgical mask and maybe it can be more comfortable because you can keep swapping out the paper towel. Mm -hmm. I like it. We also made a small hopeful improvement to the sound quality in this episode. So any of our 
listeners who have been listening very closely to some of our recent episodes may notice that every so often there's a whistling noise that you can hear in the background. And that whistling noise comes from my nose. <laughs> but today I sprayed oxymetazoline in my nose before we started recording. So it better not happen this time. Capital idea. Capital idea, Luke. Talk All right, about let's... flutter, which apparently is actually a short or explosive spitting or choking noise. Or to make a series of explosive spitting or choking sounds is what splutter actually is defined as. I did not realize it was real world. That's kind of cool. New vocabulary. New vocabulary and new articles. Let's discuss lupus. All right. So I have a nice letter here from JAMA Dermatology published in March of 2020. It is an observation. The authors are Drs. Um, Seda Ertkin. And Dr. Jose M. Mascaro et al. And it is entitled Complete Remission of Hypertrophic Discoid Cutaneous Lupus Erythematosus After Treatment of Chronic Hepatitis C with Direct Acting Antivirals, which are also abbreviated as DAAs. They mention that the pathophysiology of lupus erythematosus is complex, and a lot of different factors have been suggested to help induce this complex disease, including an interplay between genetics, drugs, and infections. And they mention that although an association of hepatitis C infection with lupus erythematosus has not been clearly established, they cite some articles that indicate a higher proportion of HCV infection among patients with lupus erythematosus. So in this observation, they reported a case of a patient with refractory hypertrophic discoid cutaneous lupus that completely remitted after the treatment of their hepatitis C with direct ad- acting antivirals. So this was a relatively young patient. She was 42 years old and had chronic hepatitis C genotype 1B, and she had been infected in childhood. Her viral load was 764,000 international units, and she was diagnosed with systemic lupus erythematosus in 2010 when she was admitted to the hospital with toxic epidermal necrolysis-like subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus. This is a rare um, but I think important type of presentation for lupus erythematosus for people to be aware of and something to keep in your differential for patients who have toxic epidermal necrolysis. The patient fulfilled seven of the 11 American College of Rheumatologists criteria for systemic lupus erythematosus, including malar rash, discoid rash, photosensitivity, oral ulcers, arthritis, and positive anti-nuclear antibody as well as a positive anti-double-stranded DNA antibody. At follow-up six years later, she presented with alopecia patches on the scalp and erythematous scaly plaques on the face, oral lesions, and verrucous hyperkeratotic plaques on her hands. So a biopsy specimen was consistent with lupus with interface dermatitis and perivascular and periadnexal lymphoplasmacytic inflammatory infiltrate along with dermal mucin. There were also clusters of CD123 positive cells, which are correlated with lupus erythematosus, and a PAS stain showed thickening of the basement membrane. Is that so she, bell-worthy, CD-123 cells? CD-123 I don't remember that. CD-123 is bell-worthy. I like that. Yes, that is a nice bell-worthy diagnosis there. So um, they did make a diagnosis there of hypertrophic discoid lupus erythematosus. The patient was then treated with mycophenolic acid and prednisone because she had previously had a cutaneous adverse reaction to hydroxychloroquine. And very interestingly to me here, acetretin. She's a 42-year-old woman, so they didn't specify um, exactly that she was not of childbearing potential, but I did notice that their author affiliations was uh, were the Department of Dermatology in the Hospital Clinic of Barcelona, and I don't know if they have different um, criteria for using acetretin in women of childbearing potential than we do. So I did think that was interesting. So she'd failed hydroxychloroquine and acetretin. I don't normally think about acetretin as a medicine for lupus either. Is it because it's hypertrophic? You know, acetretin can be helpful for things that are interfacey or lichenoid. I do sometimes use it for patients who are postmenopausal for lichen planopilaris. Um, it isn't one of my first-line drugs for lupus, but I have heard of retinoids being beneficial for things that have interface dermatitis associated with them. So the patient had been treated with mycophenolic acid and prednisone along with tacrolimus with only partial response. So she was then referred to hepatology for treatment of her chronic HCV infection and her relatively high viral load. Of note, she had normal transaminase levels and ultrasonography did not show cirrhosis. So she got this kind of DAA therapy, remembering that that is going to be going to be this directed antiviral therapy against the hepatitis C virus with... Uh, Sophosbeer, 
Ooh, Sophos Bouvier. Sophos Bouvier. Sophos Bouvier. That is really hard to say. Sophos Bouvier, 500 milligrams, and uh, Belpatasvir, 100 milligrams. These sound like spells in Harry Potter. I'm just saying. <laughs> and it looks um, like the brand name is Epclusa. Epclusa. Oh, that's easier to say. Um, anyway, this is combination therapy. Four weeks in, a marked improvement in her mucocutaneous lesions was noticed, and the prednisone and mycophenolic acid were then tapered and discontinued. She completed a full 12-week course of sofosbuvir and velpatisvir treatment, which led to complete resolution of her oral, facial, and acral lesions and of her arthralgia. At this point, her viral load was undetectable, and she has remained asymptomatic without a detectable viral load after 18 months of follow-up. So that's pretty cool. Um, in their discussion, they go on to say that viruses have been accepted as an etiologic or triggering agent in the idiopathogenesis of autoimmune disorders, and hep C has been linked to immunopathologic manifestations ranging from serologic autoantibody positivity to immune complex-mediated disorders like vasculitis, cryoglobulinemia or glomerulonephritis, to overt autoimmune diseases like thyroiditis, hepatitis, and Sjogren's syndrome. A connection specifically between lupus and HCV is uncertain. Um, they mentioned that case control studies have shown a higher proportion of HCV patients, sorry, HCV infection amongst patients with lupus erythematosus, and that some authors suggest that HCV infection may mimic systemic lupus, whilst others accept it as a triggering factor for the disease. So the introduction of these direct antiviral therapies has revolutionized the management of hepatitis C. Uh, patients can get sustained virologic response in more than 95% of cases, and current guidelines recommend that all patients with HCV infection be considered for DAA therapy. Here they wanted to note that there was improvement or total remission of some HCV-associated dermatoses, including lichen planus, PCT, and symptomatic cryoglobulinemia have been reported after successful DAA therapy. And so they wanted to add this sort of to the literature of a patient that had lupus erythematosus that responded and cleared after treatment of her HCV. So they wanted to advocate for screening of HCV infection in patients with refractory cutaneous lupus erythematosus. And in the case of positive findings, they advocated for the treatment of the hepatitis C with these very effective drugs. So I thought that was really interesting. I think I had a patient in residency who had what seemed for all the world like psoriasis, who didn't get better until we finally started treating his hepatitis C. Yeah, hepatitis C really irritates the immune system. Um, there's chronic antigenic shedding, and I really feel like it pushes a lot of autoimmune disease. So now that we do have therapeutic options available that are very effective for this virus, I do think it behooves us both to check and to treat those patients who we can. Um, we also need to remember that the population of people who would technically fall into the baby boomer range, um, there is data to suggest that if they have not been screened for hepatitis C, somebody should check them because there's a higher percentage than expected of people in that age group that have hepatitis C infection and do not know it. Well, speaking of autoimmune diseases, our next article is about alopecia areata. It's also from the JAD. Well, I guess the last one wasn't from the JAD, but this one was from the JAD. Last one was from the JAMA. <laughs> Jamaderm, right? Yeah, Jamaderm. Okay, so the next one is called Alopecia Areata Consensus of Experts Study. Results of an International Expert Opinion on Treatments for Alopecia Areata. There is a whole giant list of authors, and the first author is listed as Nekma Mea, and the senior author is Rodney Sinclair. And these were 50 hair experts from five continents, so not Antarctica. Yeah. And this was a three-round Delphi process. So we previously discussed how the Delphi process works. Basically, they kind of send everybody a questionnaire about various statements that they agree or disagree with and then you fill it out on your own and then there's discussion and then they send that out again and so on so in this case this was three rounds of that and agreement um two-thirds of these 50 hair experts agreeing that a statement was true or that they agreed with it was considered consensus and consensus in this um, paper was achieved in one-third of 130 statements about alopecia areata so it seems like we still have some unanswered questions. And the reason this is important, or they decided to go forward with this Delphi process, is because a 2019 systematic review identified no systematic therapy for AA supported by what they called robust randomized controlled trial evidence. So 
There are no great systemic therapies that have been tested in randomized controlled trials. So 50 hair experts from five continents, maybe we can rely on their wisdom to at least give us some guidance. So in this um, Delphi process, they categorize alopecia areata as acute if it was less than 12 months or chronic if it was over 12 months. And they achieved consensus on following statements. Okay, you ready for this? I'm so ready first, for this. Bow, 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 I'm sorry. So first about, hey, you can't do that. All the sports are closed down now. So <laughs> this is the best we got, I guess. So topical steroids. So they, the consensus is to use ultra-potent topical steroids, things like clobetasol ointment, daily for at least six weeks and at most six months. So I don't know if I personally have kind of a, a stop time. I usually tell people to keep using it until there's enough hair regrowth that it's difficult to put on your scalp. Yeah. But I guess if it hasn't improved in six months, it's probably time to stop. How about ILK, intralesional triamcinolone? So they advocate for using 2.5 to 5 milligrams per milliliter of triamcinolone. I personally usually use 2.5 to 3.333333. And they say don't use 10 or more milligrams per milliliter. And they say, yeah, I've seen that. The good news is that they do say that if you have atrophy, they expect it to resolve over two to four months and doesn't get better in less than a month. But that atrophy on the scalp does seem to improve. They do say be cautious near the frontal hairline because that area is apparently more at risk of atrophy. And they recommend using 0.1 ml um, aliquots, one centimeter apart, and you're aiming for the dermis or subcutis. And I had a couple patients recently who've had alopecia totalis, just like no hair, but very mm -hmm. motivated. So they wanted to do the ILK. And so I just kind of guessed what was the maximum amount I should do. But I don't have to guess anymore. I can rely on the wisdom of these 50 hair experts. So they say the maximum dose of triamcinolone you should inject in one session um, to an average adult is 10 to 20 milligrams. So you got to do a little bit of math, figure out the concentration of your ILK to figure out how many mLs um, you can inject if you want to follow um, this consensus statement. They point out a few things about systemic steroids. And those are that they are appropriate for severe alopecia areata in anybody 13 years of age or over. And the initial dose is 0.4 to 0.6 milligrams per kilogram per day. So about half a mg per kg per day. And then gradually taper over three months. And they said to achieve durable remission. I was a little bit surprised in that because my general feeling about alopecia areata and I'm not a hair expert, so maybe I'm just wrong, is that none of our therapies are especially good at affecting the overall outcome. So one reason I, before I read this article, I didn't like systemic steroids for alopecia areata was because I don't like the side effects for three months worth of prednisone. And I feel like once patients stop it, they just lose their hair again if they were gonna lose it in the first place. So at best it sort of gives them an extra three months of hair or if they were going to regrow it anyway, then they're going to regrow it regardless of whether we put them on prednisone or not. But it seems like perhaps I am wrong. I've often kind of wondered if alopecia areata wasn't kind of like the autoimmune blistering diseases where they can harden if they're left to flare. And if we can keep the immune system quiet and distracted long enough, it forgets it was mad. Like maybe there is something to that. It's an interesting concept. We talked a little bit about that in the last episode regarding when you can potentially stop somebody's biologic therapy for psoriasis or um, atopic dermatitis. So maybe I need to start doing more systemic steroids. They do say that systemic steroids reduce the risk, risk of multifocal alopecia areata progressing further to become alopecia totalis or alopecia universalis. So systemic corticosteroids, more of a role in this than I um, used to give them, I guess. And then cyclosporin. So if you're going to do it, it can be effective in adults with alopecia areata as monotherapy. And the dose should be three to five mg per kg per day. And you shouldn't do it for more than 12 months, which is kind of how I approach cyclosporin for all things all the time anyway, since I'm not a transplant doctor. Mm -hmm. Methotrexate. 
Um, for adults, you want to do 15 to 20 milligrams per week, and it's appropriate for severe alopecia areata in anybody age 13 years of age or over. And if you're going to do it in an adolescent, then instead of 15 to 20 mg per week, you do 0.4 milligrams per kilogram per week, which is kind of a, a standard pediatric dose for methotrexate anyways. So those are some pearls about individual therapies in terms of first-line therapy. So they say for a first-line first therapy for both acute and chronic forms, topical steroids, interlesional steroids, or systemic steroids. So any kind of steroid for both kids and adults, um, though they do point out that little kids don't respond well to ILK. I mean, yeah. they, they don't agree that they recommend it, I assume, because little kids don't like getting poked with needles rather than the fact that it doesn't work. Um, and they do point out that for kids with alopecia universalis, alopecia totalis, or alopecia areata in the ophiasis pattern, that they say offer contact immunotherapy prior to systemics. So that's like the SADBE stuff. Mm -hmm. They say that for eyelashes, topical brostin prostaglandin analogs like bimetoprost and latanoprost are effective first-line agents. I've actually heard other people say that they don't work, so he's 50 hair experts say that they do, so I need to readjust my brain around that one as well. And then as far as second-line therapies go, they say that if all therapies were equally reimbursed, the ideal choice for systemic therapy in adults would be jack inhibitors. Yeah. But um, we obviously can't get those, especially because they haven't been approved for alopecia areata yet. And also, I do have some concerns about what their long-term side effects might be. Yeah. And then finally, their last bit of consensus statement is about the duration of therapy. So they say continue systemic treatment um, until you've got complete regrowth and maintain it for six months, and then you can go ahead and stop. Or when you've got enough regrowth that you think you can just manage it topically. And they say, if you aren't getting improvement, so if vellus hair is not converting to terminal hair, just try it, try something systemic for six months. And if you're not getting good after six months, then just go ahead and give up. Well, they don't say give up. They say duration should max out at six months if you're not having the vellus hair regrowth convert to terminal hairs. So useful for me. I actually have a number of pretty significant alopecia areata patients who've progressed. And I normally don't think about systemic steroids, so now I will. And I normally don't really think too much about cyclosporine either. Methotrexate's kind of my go-to as a systemic option. And uh, jack inhibitors, yeah, I'm still a little suspicious of them, but uh, 50 hair experts think they work well and are safe enough to agree on them, then maybe I'll think more about them. And then I might do more topical prostaglandin analogs. So the brand names are things like Latisse. Yeah, the jack inhibitors can be very impressive. They're just very, very expensive. I've tried topical compounded jack inhibitors, and um, they're hard to get. They're still fairly expensive, like $300 for a 30-gram tube. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't really tell if they work or not. Yeah, it can be kind of difficult. Um, other modalities I know they didn't really mention in this, but that have been talked about is um, any kind of, there, there's some case reports of microneedling without anything, just the actual act of microneedling seems to do something to sort of divert the inflammatory pathway. Um, scalp massage has sometimes been utilized and some people have used PRP to treat alopecia areata. There's some supposition that a lot of the like kind of blockbuster successes where people had really impressive regrowth with PRP may have been more of the diffuse form of alopecia areata responding to that treatment in some cases, but um, all sorts of different thoughts. And one thing I'm kind of worried about right now is I have some patients that normally I might use pulse dosed um, steroids on, but the controversy about corticosteroids and COVID infection right now is making our lives complicated in multiple ways, but this is one of them. Like how do we treat these patients without increasing their risk and we have to weigh the pros and cons and the risks and benefits. A good argument to the insurance company in favor of using a jack inhibitor. <laughs> That's a very good idea. 
So um, going from a consensus of treatment of alopecia areata to a consensus of treatment of psoriasis, we're now going to review a very nice article um, which was put together by some of our colleagues in Italy. And first, I want to, you know, wish well to all of our colleagues all over the world fighting this virus, but especially I know the ones in um, the country of Italy have been hit very, very hard. And so our, our thoughts and our prayers are with you guys. And we're sorry that um, you have gone through such a difficult time for this. We hope for wisdom for all of our leaders. Um, so this is an article um, out of, out of, as I mentioned, um, predominantly Italy. And the article's um, authors include Professor Paolo Gisondi and Professor um, Giampero oh, uh, Girolamoni. I like it. It might be Girolamoni. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Um, and they are out of the departments of dermatology and venereology in Verona, Italy, uh, Modena, Italy, Padova, Italy, and out of Rome and Milan. So, um, you know, we, we wish you all as well as is humanly possible right now. Um, the article's title is Consensus on the Place in Therapy of TNF-alpha Inhibitors in the Treatment of Patients with Chronic Plaque Psoriasis. And um, there are a few conflicts of interest that are all very well disco- disclosed by their very broad authorship panel. It's a very long um, panel of authors, as many of these consensus guidelines will have. They mentioned, of course, in this letter to the editor, that biologics are, of course, one of our fundamental therapeutic, therapeutic options for treating moderate to severe psoriasis. And there are um, good safety and effectiveness data for many different classes of these. And this is bellworthy because it's going to go over the names of these things. And I'm going to use both the generic and the trade names for these because I think that it's important to be able to connect them for the residents. And for those people who are in practice, a lot of people who are practicing might not necessarily have all of the generic names of these drugs memorized. So, of course, we've got our TNF-alpha inhibitors, which include infliximab, also known as Remicade, Etanercept, also known as Enbrel, Adalimumab, also known as Humira, and Sertilizumab Pegol, also known as Simzia. We also have our IL-1223 inhibitor, Eustachinumab, which I think is kind of the funniest name of all of these, like Eustachinu, I just always have thought that was funny. That is Stellara, of course. Our IL-17 inhibitors, which include Secukinumab, which is Cosentix, Ixikizumab, which is Taltz, and Brotolibumab, which is Silic. That one I have had a hard time remembering, but I kind of am thinking of like two fashionable guys going, bro, I like your Silic blouse, you know, and he's like, oh, thank you. Like, bro, and so like, it's stupid. Anyway, so those are excellent. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. (laughs) So, bro, I like your Silic blouse. Um, So these are IL-17 inhibitors. Um, And then there's the IL-23 inhibitors, which include Guselkimab, which is Trimphia, and Rizinkizumab, which is, of course, the infamous Skyrizi. And that sounds like a trap artist's name, but it is also very funny. Um, and then Tildrakizumab, which is Illumia. And I also remember this one very silly because it was hard for me to remember it. So I think about Drake is ill, like, you know, Drake the rap artist, yes. Tildrakizumab. And speaking of waterfowl, Gooselkumab, Tremphia could maybe be what a goose sounds like if it's being well and you know geese trumpet. so basically the come conclusion of this article is that uh patients who have psoriasis who have concomitant psoriatic arthritis inflammatory bowel disease uveitis hydrodenitis sativa or patients who are in special subpopulations including pediatric patients and people who may become pregnant are good candidates for tnf alpha inhibitor therapy so we basically shouldn't use it unless people have other reasons to need TNF-alpha inhibitor therapy. Well, I don't think that that's necessarily what they're saying, but they think that what they're pointing out is that these might be good reasons to choose TNF-alpha inhibitor therapy over other medications that might have potentially superior efficacy. And really, I think, as these drugs always have been, we're going to pick them based off of their unique characteristics their specific side effects and their unique properties that make them slightly different from one another. They're hard to keep track of. <laughs> They're not, not hard to keep track of. This is true. <laughs> Episode 22, um, we discussed some psoriasis biologics, and I decided that the best one was Guselcubab, taking into account cost, efficacy, and um, safety and frequency of dosing. 
And remembering so, the trumpeting goose that in the Gusuki map is Tremfire. Right. Tremfire! So <laughs> if they start making a advertising campaign based on that, I hope we get some residuals. <laughs> it's like the Affleck duck gets a other job in his off time. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about something completely different. Let's talk <laughs> about babies and their hemangiomas. So this next article is out of the JAD, and it is called A Case Series of Tardive Expansion Congenital Hemangioma, a Variation of Niche or a New Hemangiomatous Entity? Question mark. <laughs> and the authors include Chen Hua, Li Zhen Wang, and Xiaoxi Lin. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing those, so apologize. And they are out of Shanghai, China. Um, so hope everybody's doing okay over there. And so... Congenital hemangiomas. So I'll back up for a sec. There's a couple different kinds of hemangiomas that babies commonly have. The infantile hemangioma is the most common one. I don't know if this is bellworthy, Michelle. This sounds like resident pimpable stuff. So the infantile hemangioma is the most common type of hemangioma that babies get. And it classically shows up a few days to a week or so after birth and then grows rapidly and then plateaus and then slowly infolutes over time. Usually not present at birth, though patients can have what they call a precursor lesion. Though I will say there are some babies who seem to have a fully developed infantile hemangioma that's present at birth, but otherwise behaves normally like an infantile hemangioma. So, whatever. However, those are different entities than congenital hemangiomas. So a congenital hemangioma is fully developed at birth, and it might just sit there forever, in which case it's called a non-involuting congenital hemangioma, N-I-C-H, which you could pronounce niche, though my senior mentor and fellowship, Alfie Kroll, says that the people who originally described it were French and would pronounce it niche. niche. So That's nice. if I'm talking to Alfie, I'll say niche. Otherwise, I'll probably say niche, just like everybody else. Um, the congenital hemangioma, instead of just sitting there, can actually involute rapidly, in which case it's called a rapidly involuting congenital hemangioma, or rich, or riche. Or would we say riche, like riche. Exactly. <laughs> and there's been some interest in the fact that maybe there's a, a congenital hemangioma subtype that partially involutes, but not fully. So that's called a partially involuting congenital hemangioma, or piche, I guess. <laughs> I just want to make a pitch that. that that's maybe not the best sound. Get it? <laughs> so these authors are describing yet another potential variant of a congenital hemangioma, which they are calling the Tardive Expansion Congenital Hemangioma, T-E-C-H. Tech? Tech? Tesh? Not quite sure. T-E-C-H. Well, I mean, Luke, you went to Texas Tech. How do you spell tech? Uh, T-E-K. Come on, man. You spell it T-E-C-H. <laughs> So maybe that's like the Red Raider hemangioma. Like, yeah, it's definitely red. So <laughs> maybe the new mascot should be a large congenital hemangioma suit. I mean, People our colors are already red and black. It could work. It'd be like, hey, involute the other team. <laughs> anyway, so this paper is a case series of 11 congenital hemangiomas that behaved in this unusual way which were observed uh, from 2012 to 2018. And they all exhibited proportional growth, similar to that of a niche. So they were fully present at birth, and they just sat there for a while, growing proportionally with the child, just like a niche niche, niche does. But mm -hmm. then these 11 congenital hemangiomas subsequently underwent later expansion during childhood. So that's the, where the term tardive expansion congenital hemangioma comes. So tardive means like late. So late expanding congenital hemangioma. These patients were nine boys and two girls. They were all East Asian. These techs had a predilection for the head and neck. So 10 of the 11 were on the head and neck. And four of them were on the preauricular temple area. So they showed a pretty strong predilection for that area. And one of the 11 was on the abdomen. And they were all present at birth. And they had a similar appearance. So the authors say that all of the babies had a slightly bossed, plaque-like, or flat infiltrative lesion with pink, blue-red hue and fine telangiectasias. And then other features included a pale halo, peripheral large draining veins, and they were warm to palpation. 
which are fairly characteristic of congenital hemangiomas in general, that kind of appearance. And so all of these were diagnosed as congenital hemangiomas. But again, later in life, these grew rapidly. So that occurred at age one year up to age 61 months, so about five years. They, um, sorry, lost my place. So they state that the initial appearance of a tech may be somewhat reminiscent of a niche or involuted infantile hemangioma. So that's also um, a nice way to remember what a niche might look like. It looks kind of like an infant, involuted infantile hemangioma. Nine of these techs were surgically excised with no complications or recurrences. From a diagnostic standpoint, they were all GLUT1 negative. So this is probably bellworthy. Infantile hemangiomas are characteristically GLUT1 positive on histology and congenital hemangiomas are not. So they're definitely distinct entities and you can tell them apart histologically that way. And Michelle, you're a dermatopathologist. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll tell you some other histopathologic features of these techs. Ooh, I'm excited so now. They say that there's some other overlap with techs and other congenital hemangiomas. So they have prominent lobular central draining channels, okay. perilobular fibrous tissue, okay. and lobular thrombosis. Ooh, I like the thrombosis part. And they say in tech specimens, there is greater cellularity sometimes consisting of, quote, bump endothelial cells mm. and peri pericytes with moderately increased mitotic foci. Okay. So there, now you can diagnose them. Yay, I'm excited. So the authors say, why do techs occur? Well, we don't know. But they have a guess that perhaps the balance of involution and proliferation leans to an initial stable phase of the lesion, and then something disrupts that balance, and then they enter the proliferation phase and start growing more rapidly. That's just kind of a, a guess. They also state whether tech is a variation of niche or an intrinsically different hemangiomatous entity remains to be determined. So this is perhaps something new, or perhaps you could consider it a variant of one of these other things. This is probably uh, the lumper versus splitter issue, and uh, it's probably not that big of a deal, but it's probably important to remember that congenital hemangiomas can occasionally behave in ways that you don't expect. So separating them completely into rich and niche and pitch and everything might be a little <laughs> bit artificial. And then speaking of Bellworthy, there's some nice mutations here. So what do pediatric dermatologists love even more than Vaseline? Perhaps it's genetic mutations. <laughs> so in 2016, they note that uh, some mutations were identified in congenital hemangiomas, both the niche and rich type. Those were mutations in GNAC, GNAQ, and also GNA11. So once again, GNAC and GNA11 in congenital hemangiomas. And they were found in frequencies ranging from 3 to 33%. So that's a pretty big range. And regardless, it's not the majority. But hey, it's some. And they note that GNAC and GNA11 mutations have an activating effect on the MAP kinase pathway and, and or the YAP pathway, Y-A-P, which I had never heard of before, but Ooh, I, I kind of like it. YAP. Um, but the same mutations occur in both riches and niches, and so um, the mutation themselves can't explain why they behave differently. <laughs> so there's still a fair amount we don't know about congenital hemangiomas, but perhaps we can uh, start calling some of them techs, especially if we are Red Raiders. I like it. I like calling it a tech. I think that's kind of awesome. Um, so yeah, there's always like these kind of big questions whenever you have a baby presenting with a vascular lesion, how it's going to behave, how to advise the parents. And this may be a new wrinkle in how these little things can act after, you know, several months of not doing anything really interesting. Um, I was trying to figure out like what a yap is and it says it's yes associated protein not true i like it even more yes so, <laughs> so yeah i am so sorry for doing that but it was just funny um so 
going from the babies to something that usually happens in adults, um, we're going to talk now about drug reaction with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms. And surprise, it may occur within two weeks of drug exposure, a retrospective study. So the, I would like to subtitle this article, You Don't Know As Much As You Think You Know About Dress, because I think a lot of us um, were kind of indoctrinated into a very sort of rigid mindset when it comes with dress that it can't happen any earlier than like two weeks before drug exposure, um, you know, ha sorry, after drug had been started and that, you know, if it happened too early, it couldn't possibly be dress. So this article sort of challenges that paradigm. And I like paradigm challenging articles because I think sometimes we say and repeat things over and over again because that's dogma but dogma needs to be challenged and verified and tested and so I like that they did this article you so know what they say in for a penny in for a paradigm uh -huh, it's a full 20 like cents that's that's pretty good and also when you assume things you make assumptions um so we have hey here <laughs> we have a nice article here out of the jad and this was published online in September um, 25th of 2019 and then later in the actual journal. Um, and this is an article by authors Angeli Soria and Brigitte Milpied. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Um, they are from Paris, Nantes, and Bordeaux, France. And they are, um, as one would expect, situated in France. So they were studying... Uh, patients out of three hospitals in France, which included, hmm, okay, Service de Dermatologie et Allergologie, I don't know how to do this, um, Hôpital Tenon in Paris, okay, and other things I'm not going to try to pronounce. So, what the they did. The people of France, thank you. Yes, the people of France are like, please stop butchering our language. So, um, they did a retrospective study where they were able to find 41 patients with dress to include by their criteria. And they were able to separate them out into 14 patients that had rapid onset dress and 27 patients that had what they called delayed onset dress. And one of the important things they point out in this article is that the rapid onset groups had different medications in general that had caused dress to occur. So they had antibiotics, iodinated contrast media, um, where the predominant culprits for rapid onset dress and for the delayed onset dress, they were more likely to be the anti-seizure medications, carbamazepine, lamotrigine, and also the dirty drug of dermatology, allopurinol, and sulfasalazine in the delayed group. So these were all patients hospitalized in three dermatology departments with their first occurrence of dress for which a drug was highly suspected. And I think that this is kind of a little bit of a paradigm shifter for a lot of people. Um, dress has been around for a while, um, you know, as we all hopefully have learned about. It can be characterized by widespread skin involvement, fever and lymphadenopathy with at least some visceral organ involvement along with potentially eosinophilia or mononucleosis like atypical lymphocytes. There are kind of postulates that viral infection or reactivation play a role. And the diagnosis is challenging, especially in the early stages because of the very heterogeneous clinical presentation. So um, they utilized a scoring system called the Registar. Um, the Registar is the basically the registry of severe cutaneous adverse reaction, and it's like a diagnostic score for dress. And because I do think this is important, um, and because dress is a potentially life-threatening condition, I do want to go over what those criteria are. So this is like a points system. And Would you, you also like to ring the bell? Oh, yes, good point. Registar, bell-worthy. Nice pimpable content. And so you either get points for having a variable, or you get points deducted for not having it. So if you have fever, which they define as greater than 38.5 degrees Celsius or 101.3 degrees Fahrenheit, then you actually don't lose a point. If you do not have a fever, it's like a deduction in the Olympics. You lose a point. Um, lymphadenopathy gets you one point if you have it, zero points if you don't. Presence of atypical lymphocytes gets you one point if you have it, zero points if you don't. Eosinophilia is actually gradated. So if you have eosinophilia around 10 to 19% or between 714 sorry, 1,499, um, then you have a score of one. If you have eosinophilia greater than 1,500 or greater than 20%, then you actually get two points in that variable. Skin rash, as 
our patients here in West Texas like to say, they have a skin rash. If they have a skin rash and it is greater than 50%, you get one point. If you also have edema, infiltration, purpura, or scaling, you get an additional point. If you don't have any of those things, you get a deduction of one point. So if the, the people biop- of Texas are like, hey, stop butchering our language, y'all. Yes, they're like, oh, y'all, please stop doing that, please. That's that's actually terrible. I have a terrible Texas accent. It's embarrassing. Um, that's so good. What's kind of funny is if you have a biopsy suggestive of rash, sorry, suggestive of dress, you just don't lose a point. You don't get a point for biopsy. But if your biopsy is not suggestive of dress, it's also a point deduction. So that could be a convincing argument not to biopsy patients with dress. Um, internal organ environment involvement. If you have one organ, you get one point. If you have two or more, you get two points. If it resolved um, kind of greater than 15 days after it started, so it took a while to get better, you don't lose a point. If it got better too quickly, you lose a point. And then um, if you've evaluated and excluded other causes of their presentation, like ANA, blood culture, serologies, hepatitis, chlamydia, mycoplasma, stuff like that, if you checked and they were negative, then you get a point. If you didn't check or they weren't negative, you lose a point. So the greatest score you can get on the Registrar is 9, The um, criteria that they set for inclusion in their study was five, which was basically pretty good evidence that the person had dress. And they chose patients only that had a fairly obvious culprit drug. So only one new medication had been started and it was kind of a likely medication to cause dress. So these are all like pretty obvious cases of dress. Yeah, these are not borderline. A single drug, like everybody was like, yes, these are the 41 patients that definitely had dress from our hospitals. They said yes to the dress in this circumstance. So, oh, um, oh, I'm sorry, I could not do it. So all of these patients for sure um, had a very supportable diagnosis of dress. So um, what they found, which was very interesting, was that they were able to separate patients into these two categories. Basically, they're early on and their delayed onset. Their early onset patients had a mean delay from beginning the drug of 7.3 days with a confidence interval of about four. So that's between 3.3 days and 11.3 days. So the earliest um, onset, in fact, that they described was two days with iodinated contrast media, which is really, really fast. And I think a lot of people would say that's too fast for dress if you're going by dogma. Um, And I think that's why articles like this are important. And then then their delayed group, their mean delay was 29.4 days with a little confidence interval of eight and a half days-ish. So that would range between 21 days to 37 days, which kind of falls within our whole three weeks after you start the drug thing, which we're kind of used to. And then they clarified that there was a difference between the medications that were the trigger between the rapid onset or the delayed onset group. Um, so I thought that that was very interesting. They also said concerning the clinical manifestations, the only significant difference between the two groups was the presence of lymphadenopathy, which happened in 57% of the patients with the rapid onset and 92% of the patients with the delayed onset. So that lymphadenopathy piece of the puzzle was more common in patients who had delayed onset with those agents we're kind of more traditionally going to think of with DRESS. Those are our anti-seizure drugs, allopurinol and sulfasalazine. Importantly, they didn't find any real significant differences between the two groups in terms of demographics, age, sex, whether or not the patients had facial edema, uh, their biological characteristics, i.e. how much eosinophilia they had, and organ involvement, cutaneous features, herpes virus, viral replication. There was no difference between those two groups. So really, it's just the drugs and whether or not there's lymphadenopathy that were different. Antibiotics were a main class of culprit drugs and were involved in 10 cases. And what's kind of cool to look at, if you look at the table, which is table one, if anybody's following along with the article, um, the antibiotics were responsible for 43% of the relatively rapid onset cases and 15% of the delayed onset cases, um, with beta-lactams being somewhat overrepresented. Uh, there was also one case of dress due to the antipsychotic olanzapine. And there were five cases due to iodinated contrast in the rapid onset group. The iodinated contrast included iohexol, which is a contrast media also known as omipake, and iomeprol, which is another iodinated contrast. And remember that with those iodinated contrasts, 
they actually had cases within less than two days after initial exposure, which is really fast if you're thinking about dress. Um, so I really liked this article. I liked the fact that they pointed out also how the data has sort of shifted about this. And another interesting factor about dress is that it is diagnosed in different criteria used in different countries. So the Japanese criteria for the diagnosis of dress actually involves the rash developing greater than three weeks after starting the suspected drug. So these cases of rapid onset dress would be missed by that diagnostic criteria that's utilized in Japan. The a Japanese of, would say no to the dress. They would say no to the dress, yeah. They would say, nope, that's not my dress. So um, they do have some of the other like overlapping symptoms like the fever or the liver abnormalities or leukocyte abnormalities, lymphadenopathy or HHV6 reactivation. Some of those overlap. But that time limitation might cause cases of actual dress to be missed if different criterion are used. So I thought that that was important. Um, as we're probably familiar with, anticonvulsants were the culprit drugs um, in all of the delayed cases. So not all, basically all of the cases that involved anticonvulsants were delayed in their presentation. So lamotrigin, carbamazepine, um, they were all in the delayed onset group. Allopurinol and sulfasalazine were also in the delayed onset group. So those drugs tended to have the dress occur um, a median of three to almost like four weeks later, which is kind of a lot of time. So I thought that that was really, really interesting. Um, I think that anytime you are dealing with something that can be as dangerous as dress is, we definitely need to remember that this is one of those things if we don't think about it, we're going to miss it. And so um, I really, you know, I really like for people to review the criteria for dress critically, and I appreciated the work that this group did. Um, they do point out that there are limitations, of course, to this article and to this research because this is a retrospective study, and they kind of want this to be more of a hypothesis kind of generating study than necessarily a... Um, specific reason to kind of re-create uh, criteria, but I do think that we should expand our net when we're thinking about patients who might have dress. So yeah. maybe, a, maybe a, like, a nice like fishnet dress. <laughs> Whoa. So this, I, I often like to use the time course when I'm trying to figure out if something could be a drug reaction or not, and so I'll say, ah, oh, this is too fast to be a drug rash or whatever, and you know, I'm probably just wrong about a lot of them. The, as they say, the diseases don't read the textbook. So if you can have dress that shows up in two days, then I guess so be it. And as you say, we should keep an open mind. Two days is pretty darn fast. They did have a really interesting hypothesis about possibly why the iodinated contrast could have caused it within two days. And I actually really thought this was elegant thinking. So if you've treated patients with scabies, you know that for people who've never had scabies before, it takes them like three weeks to get itchy from the scabies. But if they've had scabies before, they get itchy in like two days because our immune system is fast to respond to something it's seen before. So they hypothesized that it might be possible because they didn't have fantastic records about contrast exposure, that these patients who had the relatively really rapid development of dress to iodinated contrast had been previously sensitized from some other study that just wasn't well recorded and that they might have had either no or subacute symptoms at that time and then their immune system was primed to react so quickly the second time. That is interesting. I feel like there's not consensus on the pathophysiology behind dress and maybe it's different based on what drug it is and so on. I remember learning that it, the toxic metabolites have to build up and your immune system or your physiology has to be a certain way for a particular drug to become toxic metabolites in your particular system. And maybe that's why it takes so long because these metabolites need time to build up. But that doesn't seem like it's the case all the time because I don't think two days would be enough for toxic metabolites to occur. Maybe I'm, maybe it is. Well, and, and then this like HHV6 thing is yeah, its own right? bag of tricks. Absolutely. I think like a lot of things that we have grouped into a diagnosis for ease of understanding and necessity of study and treatment, eventually over time we're going to figure out are really quite a spectrum of different things that we've lumped under one heading. And so there might be, you know, 
rapid dress and or maybe we'll say they're mini dresses and then they're you know ball dresses or ball gowns like i don't know but um there are likely different categories of things that we're grouping together just like i think that there are a lot of different things that we call psoriasis that all respond a little bit differently and there's a lot of different things that we kind of call eczema or atopic dermatitis that kind of respond differently and there's different processes at play for each individual unique person because no one's immune system is exactly the same. Like I'm an identical twin and even my sisters and my immune system are not identical because of, you know, like post-psychotic changes that happen. So I guess if we end up with clones, they might have identical immune systems, but even then like selection would change them. So really each unique person, kind of their immune system affects their presentation of their disease. And different types of congenital hemangioma, let's not forget. I know. Well, we just mentioned atopic dermatitis or eczema. So our last article uh, talks some more about it. So we mentioned this one briefly in our last episode. So in our last episode, we learned about a large trial called Prevent Adol. And one of the things that it discovered was that adding bath oil pretty routinely to infants' baths does not prevent atopic dermatitis. And this is a trial that looked at putting moisturizer all over new babies and seeing if that prevents atopic dermatitis. And it doesn't. Dang it. I know. I was disappointed. So there was this thought that there were a few trials back in 2014 with 100 to 150 patients that greased up these babies who were at risk for (laughs) eczema pretty routinely and then discovered that the greased up cohort had less eczema than the ungreased cohort so that i think was what led to this the the beep trial which is a a acronym for barrier enhancement for eczema prevention or something along those lines Uh, so you're not cursing we're not going beep it's not like you know we're we're not bleeping out curse words i i will stand by that statement And so there was this hope that, well, if the skin barrier is the first to become a problem, then maybe your food allergens get in through your skin and priming you to have food allergies. So maybe if we can really restore that skin barrier, we can not only prevent eczema, we can prevent allergies, we can prevent asthma. I've been looking forward to this study, so it's disappointing. Um, Anyway, this report is out of The Lancet, and its title is Daily Emollient During Infancy for Prevention of Eczema, the BEEP Randomized Controlled Trial. And the first author is Joanne Chalmers, and the senior author is Highwell Williams. So as I mentioned, these previous smaller trials showed some evidence, but there were other trials as well that showed the opposite. So the previous trials had conflicting evidence about the ability to prevent eczema with moisturizers. But one of the things that we do know, thanks to studies, is that skin barrier compromise precedes the development of clinically apparent eczema. So trying to restore that skin barrier, you know, has some logic behind it. This BEEP study included 1,400, quote, high-risk newborns in the United Kingdom. And they were considered high-risk if there was a family history of eczema, asthma, or allergic rhinitis. And they were assigned either to a daily emollient or not. And the daily emollients they used were two that I had never heard of. One is called Dipro Base Cream, and the other is called Double Base Gel. And the rationale for using these is that they're common in the UK National Health Service, and apparently parents like them. And both, they say, are a basic formulation containing petrolatum, and no ingredients known to have a detrimental effect on the skin barrier, in particular sodium lauryl sulfate. So I don't know if that's bellworthy. Sodium lauryl sulfate, apparently, known to have a detrimental effect on the skin barrier. It is a foaming agent, and I am not fond of it either. I like foam, though. (laughs) I mean, foam is fun. Should I put it on my espresso? (laughs) When you're talking about skin barrier, though, things that foam can sometimes cause problems. So petrolatum-based skin moisturizers. Sounds good. So these people did it for a year with very good adherence. So... In our last study that we discussed last episode, the adherence was pretty miserable. Uh, For this study, the adherence was 80% or more. So pretty good. So they did it for a year. So baby's born. They start using this stuff usually around day 11 of life. And then they use it until baby's a year old. And then they don't give them any more moisturizer. So it's up to the parent, I guess, if they want to go out and buy some. But the outcome was eczema a year after that. So whether or not kids had eczema at age two. 
And the purpose of this was to avoid potentially masking mild eczema by the use of moisturizer if they just looked to see if, if people developed eczema at age one. And they speculate that maybe that's why some of the previous studies did show this preventive effect because they used the moisturizer until about a year of age or so and then they looked like right at that moment and said oh no eczema but maybe they did have some eczema it was just being concealed by the fact that they kept using moisturizer in this beep study the babies developed eczema in 25 percent of cases roughly at age two regardless of whether or not they were using these moisturizers beforehand they also point out that skin infection was more frequent in the people who use moisturizer. Ah, this what? is like a dagger to my heart. Ah. So these are doctor-diagnosed skin infections, so not just parents who say, yeah, he has an infection for sure. They were all minor skin infections like impetigo and stuff, but still, the increased incidence ratio was 1.55 in the moisturizer group. And the confidence interval did not include one, so it's statistically relevant. So slathering up your baby does not help prevent eczema and might increase their risk of mild bacterial infections. Sad. It, they, of course, don't talk about other potential benefits like just improvement in xerosis and so on. This is just eczema specifically. They also looked about food allergies to milk, egg, and peanut. And again, no difference between the two groups. It was about 6% regardless. And the same was true with allergic rhinitis, with wheezing, and with allergic sensitization to cat dander, grass pollen, and dust mite. So moisturizing these babies did nothing except slightly increase their risk of getting minor skin infections. What a bummer. That is a bummer. So they state that this is an unexpected effect, but, uh, you know, that's why we do trials, because the things we think might happen might not be true. They did have some ideas about why this could have been the case. So they say maybe you needed a maybe if we used a more, quote, sophisticated formulation, it might have a protective effect. So instead of just petrolatum and stuff, maybe if we included ceramides and so on, maybe that could help. They say that adherence was really good, but maybe it wasn't quite high enough to really have an effect. Or maybe people putting on the moisturizer didn't use enough of it. You know, maybe. Maybe the people in the control group went out and bought their own moisturizer and used it anyway, which could have partially masked differences between the two groups. Maybe you need to put it on multiple times a day. Maybe you'd need to do it longer for a year. So there's all these thoughts about maybe this way wasn't the way to do it. Though, this seems like a pretty good way. Every day, basically, for the first year of life, that's it's a lot of moisturizer. So, it's uh, discouraging, but sounds like we at least have a pretty good idea that it's not going to help. I mean, I guess in some ways that's a little bit reassuring, because if I was a parent who had a kid with eczema, maybe I'd say, oh man, if I just used moisturizer for the first year of life, I could have saved him all of this. I guess I don't have to feel that way now. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's nothing else guilt relieving. So, so there's that. They do say, quote, we emphasize that our findings relate only to using emollients for preventing eczema and not the use of emollients for treating eczema. So I feel like it's pretty well established that emollients have a very important place in the treatment of eczema but it seems like they don't really have much of a place in preventing it. Darn it. Darn it. That's all I got, Michelle. Well, so, I think that was very interesting. I'm glad to hear it. I hope our listeners do as well. So today we learned that if you want, you can fold up some paper towels and stick them in your surgical masks to make them more tolerable and to last longer. We learned that if somebody has recalcitrant lupus, consider looking for a hepatitis C and treating if it's there. We learned about some alopecia areata consensus guidelines, especially uh, use of systemic steroids more frequently than I think I would have done had I not read that article. We learned about the place for TNF inhibitors in psoriasis. Perhaps there's still a place for them, especially if people have comorbidities that would also benefit from their use. We learned about Texas Tech's tardive expansion <laughs> congenital hemangiomas and how they originally just look like non-involuting congenital hemangiomas, but then between age one and five, they grow rapidly. We learned that dress can happen very quickly within two days, which is still seems pretty crazy. And we learned that 
moisturizing your babies does not help prevent eczema. Thanks for listening to us today, guys. I hope you're all staying safe and healthy and sane out there. If you'd like to drop us a line, you can visit our website, dermospherepodcast.com. It's also a good place to see our entire archive and to find links to all our original articles. We are also releasing the occasional bonus episode during this COVID crisis because we feel like people maybe have more time to sit at home and listen to podcasts and we maybe have more time to record them. Maybe. I still have children I need to take care of. So uh, we did recently release a bonus episode, which was me giving grand rounds to the pediatrics department. And we'll see if we can get some other bonus episodes out the door as well. And we have social media accounts, which Michelle will discuss. Yep. So we are active on Facebook, Twitter, and on um, Instagram. And I think that if y'all want to communicate with us about things that you would like us to talk about, um, Luke and I both also have uh, varying areas of expertise that we could potentially put up some of our recorded lectures on. So, you know, Luke, of course, is a pediatric dermatologist who gives an excellent pediatric grand runs. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that bonus episode, please do. I actually use that as a model for a flipped classroom for my residents. And I um, would advocate thinking about this for those of you involved in education. So um, if you're not familiar with the flipped classroom, it involves what usually would take place is sort of the lecture happening before um, the students actually meet with the professor. And then the time with the professor is used to discuss and sort of break down and debrief the learning that they obtained during their pre-lecture work. And so I thought it was a very valuable exercise. And I encourage you all to think about innovative and creative new ways to educate our residents in this unusual time. In my life, I'm a lot more familiar with the flipped finger than the flipped classroom. Oh, Lord. <laughs> So you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We are Derbosphere Podcast on those places as well. Feel free to subscribe. We come at you every two weeks, maybe more often with bonus episodes. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And again, hope that you're all staying safe, staying healthy, staying sane. <laughs> <laughs>